Hey, welcome to the Church on Boulevard Sermons Podcast, an extension of the ministry of Church on Boulevard in Richmond, Virginia. We hope that you'll find your time meaningful and that you'll learn to live life to the fullest as we grow together. Before we read the scripture today, I got a question for you. Are you satisfied with your life? No. (laughs) I love the honesty. Are you satisfied with your life? Not just like 100% of the time happy. Okay, because I think general understanding, especially if you've lived enough life, had enough experience, you're not just going to be happy all the time. But do you have a deep sense of satisfaction, like joy, gratitude, rest in your core that can transcend or it has staying power even in the ups and downs of your circumstances? Do you have that? Do you have that experience? Some of you might even be saying in your head, how would I even know? <laughs> how would I even know if I'm satisfied with life? Like what, what are the parameters, what are the metrics? These questions get right to the heart of our theme this morning, which is desire. We're gonna be talking about desire. Our desires can sometimes conflict with one another. Sometimes we don't know what the most important thing is, but we know we have longings, we know we have desires. We want relationships, we want money, we want our job to work out. We have a desire for God. That's our theme this morning. And satisfaction has to be talked about because desire's end trajectory is on a bullseye marked satisfaction. You can't talk about your desires without saying, can we even be satisfied? Can we even be satisfied in life? Can I even find satisfaction even if I were to get it? or whatever I'm desiring? Those are big questions. So we're gonna look today at uh, Romans chapter one, and I would encourage you, we have like a take one, leave one Bible station over here. If you wanna borrow a Bible to just hold a physical copy, grab one. Um, You can stand up right now, or even while I'm talking, grab a Bible or pull it up on your phone, whatever you wanna do. Um, I will put the scripture on the screen, but man, sometimes just holding the Bible is really, really helpful for me. We're gonna look at Romans 1, 21 through 25. If you don't know where Romans is, you go into like the last portion of the Bible. And if you flip through the last couple hundred pages, probably of your Bible, you're gonna find Romans in there. And we're gonna look at three things. The problem with desire, how the gospel uniquely satisfies that problem, and how that solution shapes us individually and as a community. So we're in a series on our mission as a church. And our mission is this, that we wanna grow together as people who are completely different because the gospel challenges our thinking, transforms our desires, and fills us with the power to live for love and justice in the city. And we're breaking it into four chunks. We started with The gospel makes us completely different. And we talked about how coming to know Jesus is like experiencing a new birth. A whole new life is planted inside of you. Your desires will start to shift. Your way of thinking will start to shift. But it's also a process of being recreated over time. So that that was week one. Last week, we talked about how the gospel challenges our thinking. 
that we don't often like to challenge our thinking, but if we're a church that lets the gospel challenge our thinking, then we will be humble and confident in any circumstance. So we live in a world that's extremely polarized and people don't wanna talk about their political opinions. They don't wanna talk about the deep stuff of life. If we're gonna be a community that can enter into that without defensiveness and bravado or self-righteousness, then we need to have the practice where we have been humbled by a gospel that says God had to come to save you because you couldn't do it yourself, but also the confidence that you are so valuable that God would do that for you. And if you carry those two things together, you can absolutely talk to somebody from the opposite side of the political aisle without being threatened. We live in a modern context where if our ideas are threatened, we feel like we are threatened because we follow Rene Descartes and the 17th century enlightenment that basically said, I think, therefore I am. And we think the core of our being is what's in our mind. And that's why we get defensive all the time. I get defensive, you get defensive when we're having conversations with people that become challenging. But the gospel says, you don't need to feel that way. God is the truth, not just your truth, not just my truth. He is the truth. And when we hold on to that and let it challenge us, we will have the practice to be able to sit with anybody from wherever their walk of life is and be able to engage with them. It's actual power. It's not just like Jesus is a good example. It's actual power. That's what we talked about last week. Sorry, I'm gonna start preaching the previous sermons, Derek, if I'm not careful. And then this week, we're talking about desires, that the gospel has the power to transform our desires. Why do you want your desires transformed? What's the problem with them to begin with? We're gonna look at the problem, how the gospel uniquely satisfies the problem, and then how that shapes us. So, I said that like an hour ago now, so if anybody forgot, Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There it is. Sorry, you guys. Let me start over. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Listen, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of God. It's living and active. So let's consider, what's the problem with desire? How does the gospel uniquely solve that problem? And what does that mean for us? Okay, the first thing I think we need to notice in this passage is that we are beings that have desires. So if we're gonna address what's the problem with our desires and the Bible has its take on it and our culture has its take on it, we're gonna talk about both. But first we need to recognize that this passage assumes that we're beings full of desire, full of desire. The Bible says desires are natural. 
Desires are really good. They can be oriented in an incredible direction that will shape your life and God wants to be involved in your desires with you. He cares about them. Nothing is wrong inherently with desire. The Bible affirms all sorts of desires. If you start right at the beginning of the Bible, if you go to Genesis 1 and 2, you're going to see that God created man and said it's not good for him to be alone. Needs a partner. So we have a desire for relationships, and God planted that in us. He created us for that. And then, if you keep reading, you'll see that he tells them. He gives them what's uh, the biblical mandate to go and rule and subdue the earth, to multiply, to take care of things. We have a desire to make a difference for work and vocation. God created us with a desire for intimacy, relationships, and impact, making a difference in the world. We all have it. We see in the Gospels that Jesus is all about the desire for food. <laughs> He's always eating with people. Paige asked us at a Bible study, like, gosh, it's been two years now since, I, since we had this conversation. Like, was Jesus fat? Like, do we know? Because he like was always eating. If you read in the Gospel of Luke, he's either at a meal, going to a meal, coming from a meal. He got in a lot of trouble. In fact, you could argue that he was killed because of the people he ate with. To do good, we have a desire to do good. We see this in Galatians 5. We have a desire for sex and sexuality in the Bible devotes a whole book to it, Song of Solomon. And it is passionate and God's all about it. Okay, so desires aren't inherently bad. So what's the problem that we see in the text and how does it translate to what we experience in our modern world? The problem that we see in the text, Paul says, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. They weren't living with gratitude. They weren't living with a sense that my life is a gift. Think about how you live if you think of your life as a gift versus a trial to be endured. Is life a gift to be received or a trial to be endured? If life is a gift, you're gonna live very differently, aren't you? These people weren't living like that. They weren't living as if life was a gift that was given to them. The Bible starts with gratitude, with a God who wants to just give. He wants to fill and meet your desires. The problem that we see as we look a little bit further down is they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. Now he's talking about idol worship here. This was a pagan society where they would bow down at shrines to other gods. But if you bump down just a little bit further, I tried to highlight the word. He gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. What's happening there? Well, what happened is they started exchanging worship for the truth of God and who he is, the gospel. They exchanged that to worship created things. Okay, what does that mean? It means that they were building these idols and bowing down to them and serving them. But those idols didn't give them power for life. They enslaved them. Those idols actually took power from them as they tried to worship them in their culture and the pagan culture. What Paul is saying is, you guys, what you've done wrong is you're worshiping created things rather than the God who created you. Now, he uses this term lusts, which is epithumei, epithumei, I don't know. Yeah, you're nodding. Derek's, Derek went to Yale and studied, so uh, I trust, trust him. This term just means inordinate desires. What's happening? Paul is pointing out that deep down, we have a desire for intimacy and impact, if we try to find it in created things, 
those things are always less than us. They're always smaller than us. Even if they feel bigger, you might think that you're going after your job because it's going to fill you and it's going to give you a sense of impact or maybe intimacy. But what Paul is saying here is, no, your job was still a created thing. It's part of the created order. There's no satisfaction in that. Your desires are only going to be met in the creator, the one who created you, the one who put that eternity in your heart that you're hungry for, and you can't find it in the created order. So he talks about idols. But listen, idols don't have to be shrines that we bow down to. There are idols all over our lives. Tim Keller defines idols this way. He says, an idol is anything more fundamental than God for your happiness and satisfaction. An idol is anything more fundamental than God for your happiness and satisfaction. So even good things, job, money, family, sex, all of those things are good. But when they become more fundamental than God, Paul says you're going to run into problems. You're going to run into problems. You're not going to satisfy yourself by doing it that way. So here's the problem with inordinate desires that we see in the text, or what he uses, the translation uses the word lusts. There's twofold. One, we're seeking satisfaction in something other than God. But two, listen to this. This one's interesting. It's sort of a paradox. Foolishness is inner disorder and chaos. So what Paul's saying is the problem with your desires is if you, find, if you try to navigate them in the wrong things and created things versus the creator, you're going to feel a deep sense of inner chaos, like you're on a treadmill. You got to keep running. You're going to feel a deep sense of something's disordered in me and I just can't settle down. I can't quite figure it out. I can't quite get it. You're always going to be hungry for satisfaction, but you're not going to find it. You're going to feel this inner sense of restlessness. Or maybe you've gone far down that journey and you've given up. This is the paradox side of it. You're going to feel empty. You're going to feel helpless, despairing, depressed, empty. And statistically, we see this all over our culture. All right, so the problem with desire is that desire begs to be satisfied. And we have to ask the question, can we be satisfied? All right, so satisfaction is the problem with desire. We have to ask, does satisfaction exist? And there's this book that was written by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He is a psychologist and he wrote, uh, not from a Christian point of view, but he, was, uh, he wrote this book called The Happiness Hypothesis. Maybe you've seen it. This was like a big bestseller like five or six years ago. The Happiness Hypothesis, the subtitle is helpful. So I'm gonna read that. Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. And here's what he discovered. He said, the ancients and moderns, so modern would be our context. The ancients were back in the Greek times of Jesus and Paul and when they're writing. He said, the ancients had a way of addressing desires in order to achieve satisfaction, and the moderns have their own way, and they're different from each other, and here's how the ancients would do it. You'll find this even today in like uh, religions like Buddhism, a lot of Eastern religions, uh, or philosophies like uh, Stoicism. Basically, the point was, detach, detach from your desires. Epictetus was writing, I think, in the third century? He was a philosopher and he said, there's no harm in kissing your child's head at night and reminding your heart tomorrow they may die. In other words, don't get too close to your kids. What they understood was if you get too close to loving somebody, you're gonna be disappointed. 
So you're not gonna find satisfaction there. The ancients said, you cannot find satisfaction in this world. So the best thing to do is detach from your desires. Put them at a distance. Tell yourself you don't actually love those things that much. Don't run after them so fast. Release them. You'll never satisfy your desires in this world. And if you try, you'll be disappointed. What they pointed to, which is just fascinating, I read an article in The Atlantic uh, that was published last year. Uh, we know this is addiction, addiction cycles, right? You try a drug or whatever it might be. In fact, the article was making the argument that emotions work just like drugs do. You get a rush of dopamine when you have a positive emotional experience. And that gives you a new level of tolerance for that emotional experience. And what the article in The Atlantic was saying is, this is called the hedonic treadmill. Hedonism, a seeking of pleasure. It's a treadmill. In other words, you're always running on the treadmill, but you're never changing location. You just start feeling like you're getting exhausted because it's like the process of addiction. You got the hit from your job because your boss complimented you, but it's been months now and he hasn't affirmed you again. So, so you now have a drop off and you got you to gotta do something to get his attention back. And you're on this hedonic treadmill where you're never actually going anywhere. You're just always trying to please the people around you or get the right job or find the right thing. Get it, it. There's something that exists that you can't reach. And the ancient said, stop striving. Just detach from all of those bad emotions and desires. Here's the problem. You guys can probably already see this. You're smart. What happens if you're always detaching yourself? Like the example of kissing your child at night and reminding yourself that you shouldn't love them too much. What's going to happen to your heart over time? It's going to get cold. You're going to find that over time, you're dispassionate. You like wake up one morning, and you're like, why do I not really care about my life? I'm actually becoming apathetic. It restrains the heart, but it doesn't change the heart. The ancients wanted to restrain the heart, but that doesn't change the heart. They realized something was wrong with the heart. There's a problem with all these desires. What do we do about it? Let's restrain it. Let's put a collar on it. But that doesn't change your heart. If you're always telling yourself, no, bad, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Does that actually change you? And what are your primary motivations in that type of lifestyle? Usually fear and pride. Fear when you aren't doing it well or you're nervous that you might not do it well and pride when you are. You feel self-righteous to others. That was the primary ancient response. I'm not saying people didn't think differently back then, but that was the primary in this book um, by Jonathan Haidt. But then he says the moderns, the moderns don't say that desires um, need to be detached from. You should detach from your desires because there's no such thing as satisfaction in this world. The moderners say there is satisfaction in this world and your desires are the pathway to your satisfactions. Your desires are how you get there. Follow your desires. There is satisfaction. Follow them. Find what makes you happy. Don't let anybody stand in your way. And this will release the heart rather than restrain it. But that doesn't change the heart either. Releasing the heart doesn't transform it. There's four problems that Tim Keller points out that are almost truths that are actually the problems with this modern approach. Here's number one. These are my terms, not Keller's. I'm paraphrasing, but these are basically the concepts. Here's almost truth number one. Hustle and anxiety. Hustle and anxiety. When you're young, when you're first starting out, you tend to have this perspective of life that satisfaction is out there if I just work hard enough to get it. 
if I just find the right person, find the right job, and then climb the ladder. It's out there. Here's what the problem. What happens when you get the thing and it doesn't satisfy the way you thought it would? One approach, and this is almost truth number one, is you start blaming the thing itself. You say, this job just wasn't what I thought it would be. And something's wrong with me. It's the job's fault. It's the, it's, or it's my spouse. You get married and you think that being married, that's going to like help everything or it's going to make you feel better. And suddenly after a while you realize my spouse isn't perfect. So what happens? You blame them. Man, okay. I love my wife, but she doesn't want to have sex as frequently as I want to have it. I love my husband, but he's just always checking out after work. Maybe if I could just find that person that doesn't do that, then, then I'd be satisfied. That's what I need. I need that next thing. I need that next thing. It's hustle culture. You're on the hedonic treadmill. And here's, here's the problem with this. When you're blaming others, you're always going to feel like there's a better spouse, a better body, a better job, a better thing out there for you because it exists. Remember this, the, the assumption of the moderner is that there is satisfaction out there. You just can't get to it because the things that you're grabbing are wrong. Something's wrong with them. So the first problem is you might find yourself just blaming the things in your life because you get them and they don't satisfy. That's almost truth number one. See, there's truth in it. There's truth in it. You are gonna get the job and be disappointed. No spouse is going to be perfect. Nobody that you marry is gonna be perfect for you. So there's truth in that, that you will be disappointed in people. The problem is what you do once you realize your expectations aren't being met. You're not being satisfied. Okay, here's almost truth number two. I'm gonna call it the resentful person. So the first was the hustle person that's like, hey, if I just get to the next level, if I just get to the next level, find the next thing, find the next drug, whatever. Number two is resentful person. These are the people that blame social structures and injustices. Now hear me on this because this is a very popular one and here's the truth about social systems and injustices. They are corrupt and broken, absolutely, because there's broken people in all of these systems and we have to change them at a systemic level. These are really important conversations to have. And I have a problem when the church says, we don't talk about you know, critical theory. We don't engage these things. That's a problem. So I'm not saying that. What I'm saying the deeper problem to that is when you find yourself being resentful of society around you because society has held you back. That doesn't help you in life to just walk around and being like, well, the only reason I'm not making it is because this thing stood in my way, this system, this oppressor, this person, this, if we just tear down all the monuments, then we'll feel better about our society. So you blame the systems and the structures. It's true, but only almost true because those systems and structures are still made up of fallible people and you replace them with other systems and structures that will also be fallible and make mistakes. Here's almost truth number three that makes chasing satisfaction a problem. Despairing. What if you get it all? What if you climb to the top and you don't have it? You can blame yourself. You can blame yourself. Something's wrong with me. I made the wrong choices. I, I can't believe that at that time in my life, I just never let myself sow my wild oats. So now I'm midlife and I'm married to somebody and I need to have some pleasure. I'm gonna go to the strip club. I'm gonna go do my thing. I'm gonna go gamble. I need my pleasure. I didn't get a chance to sow my wild oats. You're blaming yourself. 
you feel shame, you feel guilt, you can't quite pinpoint it. Culture tells you not to feel any of those things. So you're just like, I just need to be happier. Just, I just need to like put a smiley face sticker on this. Here's the thing. You do have reasons to blame yourself. <laughs> you do do things wrong. You do make some bad decisions. But your life is not the sum total of your bad decisions. It's an almost truth. And it will crush you if you believe it. And here's number four. I'm calling this the modern cynic. Um, I think C.S. Lewis calls this the modern sensible person. Maybe you've bumped into this person. They've given up on satisfaction, but not in the way the ancients did. The ancients were like, hmm, like detach from desires and let me find stasis in myself. The modern person, by the time they've given up on satisfaction, the person I'm talking about here, they're just smarter than everybody else. The way they're finding satisfaction is by always feeling self-righteous because look at those people that are silly, chasing after all the things, ha, ha, ha. Like this is the philosopher that's on social media that's like, you can't find it out there, but you can tell that there's so much seething judgment under their comments. You can tell that they're actually finding satisfaction because they're the person that's figured it out, that there is no such thing as satisfaction. There is no it out there. They're disillusioned and their disillusionment has made them critical and cynical and they are mad at people who seem happy. And you can oscillate through all these different almost truths. The reason that last one is an almost truth is, well, we can't find satisfaction in this world. But finding satisfaction by putting others down or trying to elevate yourself is gonna break down society. It's gonna crush community. And you're not gonna ultimately be happy. You're gonna end up cold and alone. So let me reiterate, what's the problem with desire? Satisfaction. Is it out there, is it not? And how do we get it if it is? That's the problem with desire. The ancient idea deadens the heart if you follow it to its extreme. And that ultimately dehumanizes you. Because how can a human being always feel detached from all of their desires? What's that person going to look like? How kind are they going to be with others? Or are they just going about their business like a solid individual, taking care of themselves and their own? The modern problem is that the heart has to ride the ups and downs of your circumstances all the time, and your identity gets crushed by it. Are you performing well enough or not? Satisfaction's out there, you just gotta get it. What's wrong with you? Work 80 hours a week, whatever you have to do. Get it, get it. And that dehumanizes you because you're on the treadmill and you're not going anywhere because it'll crush you. I have been in the fetal position on my child's bed because I was doing this while I was working at a church. I was doing that hustle for God. So I was like, God's supposed to make me happy, right? I'm leading worship at a church. I'm doing this every week. Shouldn't I be getting like more of a hit by now? The first five years were awesome. And now I'm starting to like limp along. And now I'm starting to feel resentful of people around me. And now I'm starting to wonder if the system was set up against me. And now I'm wondering, will I ever be famous? I mean, wasn't the whole point of this to build a mega church and become a famous musician and people are going to love me? And I'm rocking back and forth in the fetal position. My wife's like, well, you got to quit. You got to do something because we got to change this. <laughs> we got to change this narrative. I'm tired of dealing with you. 
That is what happens when we dehumanize ourselves by trying to run after a satisfaction that is somewhere out there that we can't grab. One way restrains, the other releases the heart. But here we go. The gospel, you guys knew I was going to go here. The gospel transforms the heart. Totally different. Totally unique. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it true. Please hear me. What I'm about to share with you is the Christian perspective as best I understand it. You can choose to leave it behind. I'm just trying to pull back the layers a little bit and poke at all the options we have. And I want to show you why the gospel is the best way. So point number one, the problem with desire. All right, now we're on to number two, how the gospel uniquely satisfies the problem. All right, I want to look first at an ancient person uh, who's really like a towering force in theology in the West. I want to look at them. And then I want to move on to a Bible passage to see what Jesus shows us. And then we're going to piece it together to see the gospel come out. Sound good? St. Augustine is where I'm going to start. St. Augustine was born in the fourth century. St. Augustine was, uh, his, his ethnic identity would have made him a darker skin at the time. He was born into a family that was uh, middle-low socioeconomic level. And he wasn't born as a Christian. His mom was a believer. I think his dad was a pagan. And St. Augustine went through life always wanting to be in the in crowd. And back then you were in if you were a philosopher, if you could philosophize really well, if you were really smart. That's where the urban centers were really getting their juice was from the people that were thinking differently. And so he wanted to get in the in crowd. And so he spent his life trying to get there and he was brilliant. He was really smart. But he also had a little side addiction. Augustine was most likely what we would now call a sex addict. And he wanted to have lots and lots of sex, and there were plenty of opportunities to do it. In fact, back, there in, back then in pagan culture, there was a lot of religious activity around prostitution and having sex. So Augustine tries to make it. His family pulls together enough money to get him into school. He's proving that he's really smart. He's having plenty of sex, and something is still wrong. Something's still restless. He's one of those guys that's just like always searching for truth. He comes along uh, and finds some writing by Cicero. And Cicero says, you know what the problem is, Augustine? <laughs> You're trying to find satisfaction out there through your desires and you won't find it. So detach from them. He was reading one of those ancient philosophers. And so he tried it. I lost my place. Give me one second. Eventually... Augustine came to find the truth and beauty of the gospel that compelled him and changed everything for him. And he wrote about it in his autobiography, Confessions. Here's what happened. Eventually he realized that trying to deaden himself didn't allow him to live a satisfying life. <laughs> but trying to chase it and trying to get satisfaction wasn't working either. It was leaving him exhausted and restless. And then, because he's brilliant, and we owe a lot of credit to him, he started noticing these passages like what we read in Romans this morning. What if it's not the desires are bad and you should detach from them, but what if also there isn't anything that can satisfy us in the material realm, constrained to our world? What if there's something else? What if 
we've been worshiping creatures rather than the creator. And Augustine, one day, there's, he has a miraculous kind of conversion story. He thought a kid was calling to him from outside his window and said, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he walked over. And because he was a philosopher back then, they're engaging all the thoughts. He didn't think Christianity was nearly deep enough or nuanced enough for his cultural assumptions. But he had been reading his Bible um, because he was trying to think about all these theories and philosophies. And it, he opened it up into Romans, and he didn't read the passage that we read, but he read a passage that converted his heart. And here's what Augustine says. He says, this is a famous line. You've probably heard this. I was restless. God made my heart for him, and I'll, I was restless, and I'll be restless until I rest in him. If somebody made my heart, maybe satisfaction is out there, but it's not out there constrained to the material realm. What if it is further beyond that. What if it's from God himself? Scripture says God planted eternity in our hearts. We are like a desire cavern. We want so many things. In fact, I read one theologian who's Catholic who was saying uh, that uh, maybe the reason we desire all those things is because that's part of the experience of heaven. Jesus says we aren't given in marriage in heaven, maybe because the satisfaction that sexual interaction between a husband and wife gives us now is something akin to what we experience in heaven with God and with all of humanity when we're resurrected. How weird is that? What if God wants to satisfy all our desires is my point. But Augustine didn't stop there. <clears throat> he said, your answer is to love God, but not at the expense of your desires. Instead of desiring things less, love God more. That's the key insight there. Instead of loving your child less, love God more than your child. Instead of loving your job less, love God more than your job. Instead of loving money less, love God more than money. In other words, hang on to your desires. You need them. Do you want to build a society? Do you want to build something in the world? If you're detached from everything, you're going to have no passion. Yet, you may never make an emotional mistake in public. You may never get hot-headed or whatever. We need people like that, don't we? Don't we all need to make some mistakes for what we believe in? I don't care whether you're Republican, Democrat, whatever. Some of us just need to stand up for what we believe in. And we need people like that. And the way that you get there is by recognizing that the gospel gives you something totally different when it presents you with Jesus Christ. Because when your satisfaction is in him, you will place your love in him. And then your other loves, listen to this, this is where Augustine went next, will be rightly ordered. See, the problem is we're chasing superficial desires and sometimes they conflict with each other. Sometimes they don't work out. I want to marry this person, but I also really want to make it with this job. And right now they're mutually exclusive. I either got to move to New York or I can stay here and be with this person. I got to make a decision. You're always at war with your desires. And what Augustine says is put God first and it won't make everything easy. It will start to re-stratify. Things will start to fall back into their proper place. So we're going to look at this and how it works. In other words, the invitation from Augustine is, what's your deepest desire? Let's get to our deepest desire rather than bumping around in our superficial desires. So let's look at a passage in scripture that's really, really good. And I'm just actually going to pull out one phrase. In fact, I don't need to 
read it directly from the text right now. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to look it up later, it's in Mark 10, verse 46 through 52. It's a blind man named Bartimaeus. And Jesus is walking with his disciples. And this man is crying out, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, son of God. And Jesus' followers are like, quiet, quiet, you. <laughs> like this man is busy. He's moving on to his next task. And he's like, no, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And when the guy comes to him, he looks at Bartimaeus and he says, what do you want? What do you want? Here's what Jesus is doing. I read Jesus to be showing that God cares about your desires, cares deeply. He wants to know, what do you want? But that God also invites you to consider your deepest desires. So in my last job, I was so worried that if I left music behind, I'd always feel this gap in me because I was primarily a musician. What I've learned is if my job and my family are going pretty well, I don't touch my guitar for weeks. Like if Paige and I are doing well, I don't touch my guitar for weeks. What does that mean? It means somewhere in the desire for me to do music and write songs isn't quite as high as my relationship with my spouse and my job. And what the Christian understanding says, what if... God even supersedes that. So what if when things are going well with God, then your job doesn't feel as important, then all these other things, but you still are passionate about them. They still hurt when things go wrong. It just doesn't crush you. It doesn't crush your identity or force you to keep running on the treadmill. God invites us to consider our deepest desires because if you consciously make him your highest desire, he will reveal to you your deepest desires. There's always a paradox in the gospel. And if you consciously make God your highest desire, he will reveal to you your deepest desires. And then God invites us to bring our desires into dialogue with Jesus. He's asking you, what do you want? What do you really want? Somebody told me recently that he's been praying a prayer because he has so many things that aren't satisfying him in his life right now. And this is the way he's been in dialogue with Jesus. He's been saying, God, you put these longings in my heart. You put them there. He's a church planter, so he was like, I want to build a big church. I want it. Why are so many of us afraid to say what we really want? We stop ourselves before we can even say it because we think it might be immoral or wrong. No, he, this was so helpful for me. This was just a few months ago. It blew my mind. He laid it right before God. He's like, I want to build the big church. I want to do it. But God, it's not happening right now. So instead of me forcing it, I'm just going to lay it before you. Either, either detach me from this desire, you do it, or fill it, make it happen some way. Me, give me a different desire. But that's putting your desires in dialogue with God. It's saying, God, I, you put these longings in me. You got to do something about it. I trust you. Okay. I'm looking in your eyes. This is incredible good news that we're about to dig into. And I really want to make sure I have your attention. So... I'm going to take a deep breath, and we're in the home stretch. All right, we're getting to our last point. So our last point is, how does it shape us? In Hebrews 10, we have this passage. Look at verse 34. He's writing to a church that was in persecution. People were getting imprisoned for their faith, and he says this. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How 
How do we understand this? Jesus must be our preeminent desire in order for the other things to work out. It doesn't mean circumstances are going to go great, but we can still have joy within the circumstances. Loving God means you rest in God's love. It means that he created you to rest in him and created things will not give you that rest. So if you're feeling restless, chances are you're not resting in God. I think sometimes we sell God short. We're like, well, I'm still supposed to be dissatisfied with life. Don't buy it. You can be satisfied with God. I'll say more about that in a second. When you love God more, you'll love everything better. That's the next point. When you love God more, you'll love everything better. Here's an illustration. Paige and I, in the moments when I love Paige more than God, here's what it looks like. If she critiques me, I get ticked. It crushes me. Her critique means everything because her voice is highest. I know immediately that I care about her more than God in that moment. But here's the other piece. I will nitpick. I will want her to be just so for me because it's got to satisfy me. I got to feel better. And you are the one that God gave me to feel better. So just be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. (laughs) And I will be happy. I will be satisfied. In other words, I won't love her well at all, will I? I will love her so much better if when I'm with her, I love her so passionately, but not as much as God. Why? Because I'm going to go to God when I'm feeling dissatisfied with life. I'm going to go have the conversation with him about my longings. And I'm going to talk with Paige about it, but I'm not going to expect her to do something about it. I'm going to expect God to do something about it. And if it's not changing, I'm going to keep expecting. And suddenly I'm loving her so much better. It puts your loves in the right order. So how do you love God more? Here's the final point, the gospel. It's when you look at Jesus and you see that you are so precious to him. I know that's a weird word. It's a soft word for guys, but stay with me for a second. Try to wrap your arms around it. Try to be tough enough to to handle it, Charlie. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have called you out. When we see that we're so precious to God that Jesus would come to this earth, he took on himself the burdens of all of our desires that are aimed in the wrong direction. All of our desires that create so much evil and torque and breakdown in society and in community because we're chasing after our desires in the wrong way. He took all of that on him and he carried it to the cross and he was crucified. This is what Christians believe. Remember I said, I can't make you believe this. I can just tell you what the Christian truth is and why it's unique because no other religion gives you a Jesus. No other religion has God come to earth. So you might choose not to believe Christianity, but it's the only one that offers what it offers. That's what I mean about the importance of the uniqueness of the gospel, because it's the only one like it. It's a crazy claim, but it's a rational claim. I can hold on to Christianity even if I can't know all the truth of God, because I can know him truly because he revealed himself in Jesus. And he proved that he loves me and that he's not some detached spirit because he died on the cross for me. And because of that, listen, I don't know any other way to do it. I don't know any other way to grow love in your heart because the gospel also ties our hands behind our back and says, it's all about grace. It's all about grace. So do we have to love God more and work harder to love God or hope that he'll give us love back? No, we can't do any of that. So what do we do? We have to meditate on the gospel. We gotta look at it until it becomes so precious to us. And you know what'll make it precious to you? Is if you recognize that you are precious to God. 
When you see him doing all of that for you, it will transform your heart. It evokes love. It evokes love, and I don't know any other way to do it. It'll shape you individually. James says faith comes through hearing, so listen to Scripture. Listen to the word. Remind yourself of the gospel. Say it out loud in the morning if you have to. You don't do your quiet times or whatever your disciplines are so that you get something out of God. Don't go to him to make you happy and satisfied. Go to him so that he becomes beautiful to you because you're beautiful to him. And then communally, it means that we'll be a community that can stand up under suffering. It'll mean that we're a community that doesn't just back down to any whim or whatever's going on in culture. You know what it means? It means that we'll be a community. When people come around, they'll be like, hold up. They, before the church service, there were two people in the back and it felt like I was at like a Jewish dinner or something. They were arguing, bickering. They were passionate. They were yelling at each other. And then it was like mom came in the room and Paige got on the mic and said, let's stand together and worship. And they stood next to each other and they worshiped passionately. And when the service was done, they kept arguing, they kept bickering, but they were listening to each other, but they were passionate and they were engaged. And then they went out and they made a freaking difference. Why? Because they weren't so strung up on how happy they needed to be. They knew their satisfaction was in God. They were gonna find it there. So they could actually go out and do something in Richmond. They didn't have to just think about what their church experience was like. That's part of the reason why we don't do high production here. I mean, we, got, we strung the lights. I cut my hands doing that. I think those are very pretty and nice. But like, I don't know, man. Do we need more than that? If we're just navel-gazing all the time? No, the gospel calls us to more than that as a community. That's why we're on mission together. And then hear this. This is, this is the closing point. As a community, we need to understand this too, that the satisfaction that Christ gives us is always partial, this side of heaven, but it is sufficient. It's always partial, this side of heaven, but it is sufficient. It means that when your desire for property is less than God, it will really hurt when things get plundered. <laughs> but like the Hebrews, somehow you'll be able to joyfully accept it, not because you're a passive bystander, but because you're holding on to Christ. Do you know how strong that will make you? Do you know how strong that'll make our community? It's only in rejoicing and re resting in Christ and what he's done for you that you'll have the greater possession and the abiding one. They had the person of Jesus and you have it too. So if you're here and you're like, I've never had any encounter with God like that. The only thing I know to tell you is you're here. <laughs> Something's causing you to think about it. Something's tapping on your heart right now. Explore it. And if you're like, well, how do I even receive that? How do I get there? There's traditional ways of talking about how we convert to Christianity or whatever, but I would say ultimately you have to step down from being Lord over your life and trying to navigate all your desires. And that takes a process, but you have to look to God highest. So what does that mean? It means you say, all right, for a season, I'm gonna set all my need to satisfy my desires aside. I'm gonna turn to God. I'm gonna be in Christian community. For those of you who are like, I am a Christian, but I don't desire God like that. That's why we need each other. That's why you need a community because we gotta preach the gospel to each other. We gotta do this together. There's no other way. You can't be individuals walking around trying to be Christians. It'll break you down. Over and over and over, let 
the gospel be a conduit of God's grace into your life. That's, that's how it shapes us. That's the unique Christian response. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Church on Boulevard Sermons podcast. You can find out more about Church on Boulevard by going to www.churchonblvd.com.